Hey guys, Pastor Jürgen here. We're so excited you're tuning into one of our amazing messages. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, it's going to be real, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to help you to grow stronger in your walk with God. It's going to put faith on the inside of you. It's going to cause you to be able to walk in greater dimensions of blessing and enlargement so that you can be a blessing to other people. Well, lean in, enjoy the Word. God bless you. such a blessing to be here. Now, as you can tell from my blazer, uh, I'm from the East Coast. I don't... Uh, you know, I'm not into this, like, you know, this California, like, hoodie gangster stuff. No, no. No, I sneer at that, okay? I look down my nose at that stuff, you know. So, but I realized I was in California when I, the plane landed the other day. My, my wife is, is here with me because obviously she doesn't trust me. You know how that is, you know what I'm saying? No, she's, she's with me because I said, you got to, like, this is an amazing uh, church you have here. And I, I wanted her to experience this. Because I was here, was at the Balboa campus? Okay, that's not as good as this campus, right? Yeah, this is, I heard about that. I, I heard about that, yeah. So, but, uh, but I, I was there and I said, I want my wife to join me. So we, you know, we're from the East Coast. It's still cold there. So we, we landed here the other day and I got uh, a, a text message when I landed from a number I had. I was like, what, what is this? And it was one of those voice messages, you know, when somebody texts you with a voice message. I don't get a lot of that. And so I was like, what's this? Who's this? So I listened to it, and I was like, hey, bro, uh, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm like Pastor Matt or whatever and stuff like that. I was like, how did this, like, this 18-year-old got my phone number? Like, what is that? Who is, who is this? Like, he, he's like speaking surfer stuff, and, and he says, he says, yeah, you know, I just want to kind of check out, you know, maybe... Maybe you could uh, call me back and you could let me know what kind of vibe you're going to be throwing out on Sunday. And I was like, what? Well, I, nobody told me I was going to be throwing out a vibe. Like, I didn't even know. Can, can Christians do that? What is that? I'll be throwing out a vibe on Sunday, you know, and, and I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I don't even know. Is this English? What is this? English? What is this? I don't know what that is. And I, I got very confused, you know. Uh, and then I spoke, uh, and I, I realized, no, no, this is actually the pastor, like, of that, of that campus, of the campus. We don't really have campuses in New York. We actually have, like, buildings and stuff. Like, it's just, but, uh, so the pastor was, like, this, this guy who's asking me what kind of vibe I'm throwing out. Because he's very protective. He doesn't want people throwing out the wrong kind of vibes, you know, to his, to his flock. And uh, I had to really think hard about, am I... And I had to really, I had to really go before God and ask the Lord, what kind of vibe am I throwing out? You know what I mean? Maybe I'm throwing out more than one vibe and I didn't know. And how do you know? How do you find out? You know what I mean? I don't even know if I have the discernment to know how many vibes I'm throwing out. So it was very confusing. And, uh, and I still don't know. But I guess we're going we're gonna to find out now what vibe I'm throwing out. And I threw out a, a vibe, I believe, at the first service. And uh, I really, I feel like I left it all in the field. Like, I don't know how many vibe to throw out to you guys. Like, so, so God's going to have to, he's going to have to give me a vibe to throw, you know? And he's going to give me the energy to throw it. Because even if, it, if it's a heavy vibe, I don't know if I have the energy to throw it out to you. You know what I'm saying? It's got to be God. It's got to be God. So, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be, you don't want to be like throwing out a vibe in the flesh. You know what I'm saying? 
because you could like sprain something in the natural. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, anyway, you've been a great audience. God bless you. Good night. Uh, it's like, it's like, you don't know, this could be like a nightclub. Are there any windows? Is there sun out there? Or you guys, like you're California, you're like, you're, you're tired of the sun, right? Like you've had enough sun. We're from New York. We need, uh, we need, we need the sun. But anyway, so we are, uh, in conclusion, let me simply say that uh, I figured out the vibe I want to throw out is basically the content of the book that, uh, that Dr. Matt is it okay if I call you Dr. Matt? Yeah, because I would say Matthew, but it's kind of like Joseph. It's like, I'm just too hip to say two syllables. I just want just Matt. Just Matt. It's good enough. Joe. And his real friends called him Jojo. Not even Joseph or Joe, but Jojo. But I said, the book that you were referring to, the title of it is, Is Atheism Dead? Right? And, I, you know, if there are uh, people watching on the live stream who say, I'm an atheist or whatever... What I'm really talking about in this book is some, some do you have to get serious now? I don't want to. Uh, it's actually, it's kind of amazing stuff because I think the reason I titled the book as Atheism Dead is because when I was a kid, I don't remember this, but some of you have heard about this. In 1966, there was a famous Time magazine cover article that said, Is God Dead? And the idea behind that, and you understand how people get there rationally, right? If you're not convinced about God or whatever, there was this narrative in the culture, it's throughout the 20th century, but it really reached its high watermark around 1966, that science is pushing faith out of the picture. That the more we learn from science, the more we don't need faith, the less we need faith. And so... I think a lot of people kind of bought that, including a lot of people that consider themselves Christians. They're kind of like, I don't know if my faith is rational. So we got this idea that got, became part of the culture that faith is at odds with science or with rationality. Now, just to cut to the chase, that is nonsense, okay? Like, that's beyond nonsense. It's preposterous, but it is. But, but the point is, we've all kind of taken that in. The culture is like pumping that idea out, even though it's ridiculous. We keep getting that, keep getting it. So 1966, I think, you know, the uh, intelligentsia kind of figured, you know, we, we now know enough that we can take this idea that there is no God and we can dump it into America's living rooms on the cover of Time magazine. And so in a funny way, a lot of people kind of got stuck in that narrative that, yeah, pretty much faith is at odds with science or with, they're two different things, you know, and if you want to have your faith, you can have your little, little weird little faith over there, but, you know, uh, we all know that there's no God. Okay, well, the irony, and this is why I wrote the book with the title is Atheism Dead, is that since about 1966, the evidence from science pointing to the existence of God, to the existence of, of, of a designer of this world in which we live, it began to mount up quietly, okay, and over the decades, it has mounted up and up and up and up to the point where now uh, the evidence for a creator, for intelligent design or whatever, we're not talking about Jesus yet, okay? But the point is that just the idea that there is no God, science over the decades has been pointing more and more to the idea that probably there is a God. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to like that idea, but the fact is that's what science has been doing. Now, the most dramatic example of this, in my mind, is 
some of you uh, remember Christopher Hitchens. He was one of the famous new atheists, right? Some, he, was, he was very sneering <laughs> toward people of faith, right? But at one point, somebody stuck uh, a camera in his face and said, you know, uh, what is the best argument? You've debated all of these Christians and imams and rabbis, whatever. What's the best argument from their side? As an atheist, what would you say is the most compelling argument for God? And in a rare moment of candor, because he was not like famous for, you know, uh, revealing these kinds of things, but Christopher Hitchens said, oh, without any question, you remember he had that British accent, right? Which, which is a way of hiding that you don't know what you're talking about. Use a British accent, right? Just like if you got like the surfer accent can make smart people sound not that smart, right? Like I'm assuming that Dr. Matt, if he actually has a doctorate, he's not like, you know, He's not like a high surfer, you know, like hanging out on a rock. He actually, but the accent confuses you, right? Same thing with the British accent. Christopher Hitchens here, the British accent. And so no matter what he said, it was like, oh, it sounds authoritative, right? So he said, so he was asked, what's the best argument for the God side? In a rare moment of candor, he actually said, oh, without any question, it's the fine-tuned argument, right? Now, I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with the fine-tuned argument for God? Yeah, this is California. Nobody. I can't believe it. I'm really bummed out. No, seriously, nobody really has heard of the fine-tuned argument. It's pretty rare. But Christopher Hitchens mentioned it, and he said it's the idea that in science, now this is, again, this was maybe 10 years ago he was uh, interviewed. He said it's the idea that science reveals, again, this is science, okay? This is not Christian science. This is science, 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 says that we now have discovered that a certain thing, if it was a little this way or a little that way, it, it wouldn't work. Like it looks designed like it had to be exactly what it is. For example, the size of the earth. We didn't used to know this, but we now know, science now knows, that if the planet earth were a little bit bigger, like a couple of percent bigger, uh, that would cause problems. We wouldn't be able to have the atmosphere that we have. And if it was a little bit smaller, we also would not be able to have the atmosphere. So science says, well, that's interesting. <laughs> it's like, it looks like uh, we lucked out. We got to be on exactly the right planet with the perfect atmosphere. It's great. We could breathe and everything. It's cool. That's cool. So imagine when you start realizing that from a scientific point of view, not, not, not as a Christian or a non-Christian, but just from the pure science, you go, that's kind of freaky, like that science now knows that if it were a little bit this way or a little bit this way, no life. So we just looked out. We're on the planet, the right size. We have an atmosphere. We can breathe. Good, good. Okay. So Christopher Hitchens mentions this, right? Because usually when you make arguments for God, people who are opposed to that idea, they'll sneer or they make us sound all stupid. But in, in a rare moment, as I say, of candor, he said, no, this is the one that most of my colleagues on the atheist side that gives us pause. We really, there's some, you know, it takes some working out whatever. Now, there's no working it out, but the point is that it, 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 it really does, he was honest in saying, like, that kind of, that stops us. It's a compelling argument, right? So, but the point is that the argument for the fine-tuned universe, since around 1966, when Time Magazine puts out this, you know, premature, uh, is God dead uh, cover, it's like the evidence has been pointing up, has been, has been adding up toward this idea of fine-tuning on a host of levels. So this is not just the, the size of the earth. That's one. But the more science learns, think of the irony. The more science learns, it's not 
what they were saying, that the more science learns, the less evidence we have for God. The more science learns, the more it pushes faith out. On the contrary, to the horror of a dedicated atheist, they see that uh, science is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's doing the opposite. Uh, Cut it out, science. Stop. But it continues over the decades, over the years, so that now, all these years later, the evidence for God from fine-tuning and from other things, it's become like crazy. But when I was writing the book, or before I wrote the book, I thought, why do most Christians not know about this? We don't really know this because we live in a secular culture that keeps pumping out this idea that, you know, there's life on millions of planets, and, you know, the, the, the idea that what we have is incredibly fragile and requires fine-tuning, even though that's scientific fact, you don't get a lot of discussion of it in the culture. So Christopher Hitchens in this rare moment reveals this, and when you start looking into it, it really is almost funny, because again, think of the irony that the more science has discovered, the more evidence for this kind of thing that you find. Everywhere science looks, it keeps finding evidence that is like crazy. I mean, uh, uh, to give you another example, um, the moon, right? Anybody who looks at the moon, you wouldn't think like that has anything to do with whether life could exist here. You'd be like, it's nice, it's the moon, great. Well, science now knows if the moon were not there, being the size that it is, you know, what it, there could be no life as it exists on planet Earth. You go, that's another lucky break for us, right? It just happens to be there, awesome. Now, if you know anything about the, our, our, our solar system, and you should, because it's, it's, it's the only solar system we have, right? So you should know a little bit about it. So you start looking around, and you start thinking, all these other planets, they either have no moons or like 25 moons, whatever, but it's kind of curious. We just have this one moon, and our moon is gigantic uh, in terms of what other moons are compared to the planets. Our, we've got this huge moon, and because it's so huge, it stabilizes the rotation of the Earth so, so that somebody just said, come on. And I just thought, I don't expect when I talk about the stabilization of the rotation of the Earth, am I going to preach? Come on. That's like, this is next level. I'm not really prepared for this. So, so oh my gosh. Uh, glory to God. Um, so, so you start thinking that everywhere we look, we're seeing this evidence that's like amazing, right? That, that if the moon weren't there, the rotation of the earth would be, it's, it's really astounding that everywhere you look, but trust me when I tell you, this, these are just a couple of tiny little things I'm mentioning. The evidence mounts up and up. One of the ones that I like also is that, uh, just in terms of the solar system, if Jupiter weren't there. Now, some of you, I'm, I'm curious, has anybody here ever seen Jupiter in the night sky? Have you ever actually seen, so a couple people, so you guys can go out and have a cigarette break, and I'll, get, and I'll come back to you. So you don't need to hear this, you know. But if you can imagine, Jupiter is 400 million miles away, okay? Because I've measured and I know. Now, think about this, the moon is 250,000 miles away. The, the sun is 93 million miles away. Jupiter is 400 million miles away. And science now knows that if it weren't there, we couldn't be here. And you think, that is crazy. That's not possible. 
Well, this is what science says. Science says that the mass of Jupiter is so massive that even though it's 400 million miles away, the gravity is so strong that asteroids and meteors that would hit Earth are drawn away so that the number of asteroids and meteors that hit Earth is like one one thousandth of what it would be. If it weren't for that pinprick in the sky called Jupiter, that happens just to be doing the work of a, you know, like a linebacker. It's kind of like clearing, it's like clearing the, but I mean, this is what science says. It's like, oh yeah, you see, you see Jupiter, you can't even see it, right? If you're in New York, you know, you don't get to see like planets and stuff because we have a lot of uh, pollution. But the idea that that's there, and if it weren't there, we wouldn't be here. You could not have life have emerged on this planet. And you think, well, that's another pretty lucky break, man. Like Jupiter, wow, cool. But it, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? You think like, now, by the way, what I'm telling you is science. How come we haven't learned this in school? This is fact. This is not like religious fact. This is called fact, scientific fact. But everywhere you look, you find this kind of evidence. I'm just talking about stuff in, you know, our solar system. But everywhere you look, on the, on the microscopic level, on the cellular level, on the atomic level, um, if you're talking about the Big Bang, right, the idea that science used to say that the universe always existed, right? And then, starting with Einstein, they began to discover, like, no, no, it looks like it all started at a certain point that the universe is expanding. And if you go backwards, 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 it expanded from a, a point. The entire universe was created out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago. Now, in terms of science, that's very disturbing because what that means is that there's a world where everything emerged from, okay? And you'd say, well, how did that happen? There's, no, there's nothing in science that can explain how you get the entire universe literally out of nothing. Imagine, that's not like a religious version of things. That is what science tells you happened, right? And I, I don't have time to get into it, but the point is, in the book, obviously, I explain all this, but everywhere you look, you, you see evidence that is, is kind of staggering, uh, that, that points to God. And again, I'm not able to really explain what I mean, but it, it is been, it's been adding up over the decades, over the decades, over the decades, so that even Christopher Hitchens, a staunch uh, atheist, said that's the argument. That's, that's the one that we have to deal with. So I wrote about it um, in, a, in a previous book called Miracles. I wrote a little bit about this stuff, and I put it into an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, right? It was like an 800-word op-ed, and they titled it, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. And it was published, and I'm not kidding, it became literally the most shared read article in the history of the Wall Street Journal. Wait a minute. And I didn't get a penny. All right? And I'm, I'm bitter. I'm bitter. It hurts, it hurts, because we could use it, you know what I'm saying? But, but the fact of the matter is, I said, why did an article in the Wall Street Journal with the title, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God, become dramatically the most shared, read? Because we live in a culture that says that can't be true. So when you read something like that in, in the Wall Street Journal, you're like, what? What? Science 
is making the case for God. So that piece was so popular, I said, someday I have to write a book where I expand on that because there's way more stuff than I put in my, my Miracles book about the fine-tuned universe. But the evidence has just become so dramatic that wherever you look, you see evidence of design. And it's frustrating that, that I can't really get into it now because, believe me, it gets, like, comical. Water, for example. Like, you think, what could be more boring than water? Water, what? What about it? When you, like, examine water, you realize this is itself like an extraordinary confection. It's like this thing that looks like it shouldn't exist, but it exists. I mean, most of you know that ice floats, right? Do you, do you have ice here in California? <laughs> like, in, in New York, we still have some ice. But the fact is, water, when it, gets, when it becomes a solid... When, when something becomes a solid, it's supposed to become denser and heavier and sink, right? Obviously, yeah, yeah, but not water. Why? Well, the more you examine water, which is at the center of everything in life and, uh, on this planet, the more you realize that it's like this crazy, anomalous um, uh, reality that even chemists who are not Christians say water is extremely weird. <laughs> if you look at the molecule of water... The freezing point should be different. The boiling point should be different. Water is a, an extremely weird thing. And it just so happens that if it weren't as precisely as weird as it is, there would be no life on Earth. And, and it, it even gets, I mean, the more I looked into it, the more I thought, like, I have to write, like, a whole chapter on water, really? <laughs> like, because there's so much stuff. And, I'm, again, I'm just, like, t t touching on it. But water has an ability that, again, whoever would think about this, but... Water, uh, the viscosity of water. Can I get an amen? Viscosity? <laughs> Preach. Viscosity. Praise the Lord. The, the viscosity of water just happens to be such that it erodes rocks, right? So, so it takes the minerals uh, and the metals in rocks as it, as it runs over rocks, and it carries the minerals uh, and the metals wherever it goes, right? Because water also dissolves things very easily. So you start thinking, well, that's wild. That means that wherever the water runs, it's carrying these nutrients for the plants and, and whatever. And you start thinking, this is another thing. Whoever thought that erosion and viscosity, you know, could get you excited. But when you start, like, reading it, you think, if, if it weren't like that, then water would not be able to carry these nutrients to plants wherever it goes, and, and those plants wouldn't exist. And by the way, then animals eat the plants, and animals get the minerals and the nutrients, which were eroded from a rock at the top of a mountain, you know, a million miles away. And the more you look into it, the more you say, this seems extremely particularly designed. Like, it's not just normal. There's nothing normal about it. It's, un it's just an unbelievable thing. Everywhere you look in science... The evidence has been piling up. But again, you can understand in 1966, they didn't know a lot of this stuff. They kind of thought, well, the narrative is taking us away from God. Well, something changed, and the narrative starts taking us to the idea of a designer. Um, the reason I wrote the book, and I won't go into this, but I, I met a scientist in uh, Houston who is probably the most brilliant nanoscientist in the world, okay? And he's a profound Christian. And this guy, who was probably the most brilliant nanoscientist on planet Earth, said to me, you know what people don't normally talk about is the emergence of life from non-life. Now, this is, you weren't expecting to hear about that this morning, but I got to tell you, if you say to a scientist, so when did life begin? They'd say, well, we know, four billion years ago, single-celled life emerged 
on planet Earth. It's the simplest life imaginable. It's a single cell. When you get less than a single cell, you have no life. The cell is the most simple form of life there is. And they say it emerged 4 billion years ago. And you'd be like, okay, how did that happen? How do you go from non-life to life? Well, you know, like 70 or 80 years ago, you could have said, well, a cell is not that complicated. I guess, you know, we're, we're working on that. We'll figure that out. Science, the more we learn from science, the more we'll kind of figure out how that happened. Well, just the opposite has happened. The more we've learned from science, the more we realize there is no way that that ever happened. But you don't, you don't hear, there's, there's no headlines in the newspapers about this. And that's why I wrote this book. I said, this is, this is what science has revealed. This is amazing. But nobody's really talking about it. Because, let's face it, it's embarrassing. I mean, if you've been working as a scientist for decades with a lot of, you know, federal funding on figuring out how you get life from non-life, and all you're learning with the federal funding is that it never happened. Uh, all you're learning is that now we know exactly how it never happened. It's kind of embarrassing, because they might cut off that funding. If they're smart, they would, right? So everywhere you look, the more we learn, the more we see, you know what? Maybe I can't prove God, but the evidence against God is like going to zero. It's not, it doesn't make sense. So when I met this scientist in Houston, I said, have you written a book about that? He's like, no. You know, he's like one of those scientists who's like so busy working on patents and, you know, peer-reviewed papers. He doesn't have time for a book, you know. Like he, so I said, I got to write about this. So I put a couple of chapters in the book on that subject. I said, the world needs to know what you've just told me. This is just astonishing. And then I met on the other subject, so we're talking about science, I met a man in Albuquerque, which I always say sounds like a, a Johnny Cash song, right? And, uh, and this guy... He's an archaeologist, and he talked about discovering biblical Sodom. Discovering Sodom, okay, 1700 B.C., discovering it as an archaeologist. And when I heard it, I was like, I, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm a New Yorker. I'm not buying it. Like, maybe, maybe you discovered something you think is Sodom. The more I looked into it, the more I thought, there is zero doubt that he has discovered Sodom. And then I thought, no Christians that I know are even aware of this. So I, I, I wrote a chapter on that because I said, we need to understand that archaeology, similarly, every day that goes by, we're just, I mean, I literally read three days ago, two days ago, uh, that they've discovered um, writing from 1200 B.C., Hebrew writing. So liberal scholars say, like, well, the Bible was not really, you know, Moses didn't really write the, the Pentateuch. We don't believe that they, that they had uh, the ability to write. They didn't even have a, a language yet at that point. Well, as of like two days ago, more evidence comes out from archaeology. Like, oh, by the way, now we keep pushing it back. Now we know that at 1200 BC, they had, uh, you know, Proto-Hebraic alphabet and whatever. So every day that passes, more and more stuff is coming up. I said, I need to write about biblical archaeology because on the one hand, science is proving the existence of a god, but Archaeology is proving that the Bible is history. Like every time you turn around, they discover more and more and more. In other words, the narrative that you're getting in the culture is it's just not true. It's being reversed, and you're not hearing about that. Um, and so I'll be honest with you. A lot of our friends who say that they're agnostics or atheists, whatever, they've been lied to. They've been told this is the only rational conclusion. And I, I'm here to tell you you know, not only is that not true, 
but it's dramatically less true than you ever dreamt. And, and, and I just touch on a little bit of this in the book, but it, it galvanizes your faith when you start realizing, wow, um, I, didn't, I didn't know about this. It makes you realize, you know, maybe I've internalized some of this doubt and I'm less bold about my faith because, you know, I kind of act like, well, they've got a point. Well, they have increasingly less and less of a point to, to the point where I honestly think you can say from, an, from a point of view of intellectual honesty that atheism as an idea is actually dead. I mean, there are still people that say I'm an atheist, but I don't think it's really tenable from an intellectual point of view. And I have to tell you that folks like Christopher Hitchens, I think ultimately they were rather dramatically dishonest and sloppy intellectually. In other words, when you look at, uh, if you look at atheists like from the early part of the 20th century, like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, they believed that we're alone in the universe, that there's no God, but they weren't foolish enough to be happy about it. In other words, they understood if that's true, that's really, really bleak. Like, it's unbearably bleak. We're alone in the universe, and there's no God, and there's no transcendence. We just emerged out of the primordial muck by accident, so your life literally has no meaning. And then people say, well, but I create my own meaning. That's like saying, like, I print my own money in the basement. Like, it's a completely, it's like, and I'll be paying you with that money. You mind? You don't mind, right? It's like completely meaning. You don't even understand the meaning of, of meaning if you say stuff like, I create my own meaning. Like, it's utterly meaninglessness. It's utterly meaningless to say that. But so these people who took atheism seriously, who weren't just trying to sell books, okay, they saw the bleakness of it. And they weren't happy, but they said, but that's just where we are. That's what they really believed. Well, what I discovered in the course of writing this book, you know, not only is science pointing uh, to God, like, dramatically, not only is archaeology pointing to the Bible as history dramatically, but these atheists who took their atheism seriously and who were intellectually honest, Camus and Sartre, these two notable names, right? You probably read their unbelievably depressing works if you went to college, like you were forced to read, you know, No Exit or, you know, Why Don't I Blow My Brains Out Now? You know, like, like really, really depressing nihilistic stuff. Those guys, the two of them, totally independent of each other, both of them looked unblinkingly at atheism and faced it, faced the bleakness of it, and eventually both of them came to faith. Now, I got to tell you, when I discovered that, I said, I must be missing something because how come I've never heard of this? Like, these are huge names in the world of existentialist atheism, and, and, and I never heard that they came to faith. Well, they did. And again, I was so amazed. I said, I need to write about this. Like, I need to dig into this and, and put this in my book because these are the people who had the guts to be honest about their atheism. They had the guts to say that if there is no God, if we emerged randomly uh, from nothingness by accident, if that's true, then life has no meaning. There's no such thing as goodness or evil. There's no such thing as love that... I need to be honest about this. And they tried to face that. And ultimately, their very humanity made them say, you can't face this. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem right on any level. And at the end of their lives, each of them independently, 20 years apart, came to faith. And I said, that's a headline. Like, that's like gigantic that, the, that these giants of atheism dug through to see, like, it doesn't work. And so... 
I say also in the book too about that if you look at the record of atheism in terms of states that have enforced atheism, like how's that worked out? What kind of flourishing utopias have they set up since they're not like bogged down by like medieval religious people? What have they got? It, it's not only depressing, like it's like satanic. Like it's the most, in, these are the most cruel inhuman regimes on the face, on the surface of the planet. And, and we need to be honest about this. And so we've come to a place, I think, where we can, we can be honest about it. We can say, like, listen, you can't tell somebody what to believe, but if you look at the facts, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. It, it's kind of amazing that those of us uh, who call ourselves Christians, that, that we have ourselves not really, 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 really believed how clear it is that even if you don't like it, <laughs> there's a God. There's no way that this universe could exist, that life could have come into being, that on and on and on. None of this stuff makes sense. And a lot of scientists who are not Christians, they've been honest about this. And they've written about it. And, that, and I put their, their writing in my book. I said, you don't, you don't have to take the point of view of Christians. Take the point of view of scientists. What do they say about this? And a lot of them have been really disturbed by it, to be honest. They've said, the facts look bad if you're an, if you're an atheist. It looks really bad. And so I, I think that Ultimately, uh, you know, I, I was going to title the sermon, Why Aren't We Bolder, right? Because when you begin to see this stuff, you think like, what have I been acting like, you know, yeah, this is true for me. I don't want to offend you, you know. Th this is just true, you know. And, <laughs> and then, and if you're honest about the science, if you're honest about the science, the level of fine-tuning, I mean, I haven't even scratched the surface, the level of fine-tuning will freak you out. It makes you understand, like, everything in the universe, from a single cell to the universe itself to the, to the extraordinarily fine-tuned atmosphere of this Earth and what it requires, Jupiter, the moon, it, it, it all looks obviously, you know, it's kind of like finding a watch or finding a computer and going like, oh, look, that's really cool, like, that the wind and the waves created this thing. That's really cool. Like, no, it's obvious that that's not what happened, right? Like, if you look at Mount Rushmore, you don't go, hey, cool. It's like, look what the wind did over the, over the millennia. Like, no, no, you're, you're kidding, right? Like, it's obvious. Like, doesn't he realize it looks just like George Washington? Yeah, yeah, I don't think the wind did that, no. Um, the fact is that if you're honest about it, you start realizing this is astonishing. We now know, in 2022, we now have the evidence, okay? 30, 40, 50 years ago, you could say, well, the jury's out. The jury is no longer out, folks. If you're honest, okay, the evidence for God, for a creator, is so dramatic that it, it, it's like talking to somebody about, is the earth a sphere or is it flat? I, I mean, like, if somebody wants to argue that, like, have fun, I'm too old to waste my time, to waste God's time, Okay. Uh, you can have your little, you know, you and your undergraduate friends can, you can hang out late into the night and discuss whether the earth is a sphere, but I'm really too busy. Thank you very much. So the fact is, I, that's how I feel about the existence of God. It's, it's, it's become overwhelming. In fact, it is so overwhelming that if you actually look at it, I mean, one thing that I didn't say that I want to say is that this narrative that science is somehow at odds with faith you need to know, and because non-Christian scientists, uh, sorry, non-Christian historians have written about this. They have said, modern science, okay, the scientific revolution, the 16th and 17th centuries, modern science comes 
from Christian faith. In other words, it's not like, oh, it's compatible with Christian faith. It comes from a Christian worldview. I also write about that in the book where you realize, like, there were a lot of advanced civilizations. They didn't come up with what we call science, okay? You know, the ancient Greeks, I'm Greek, and I know the Greeks are better than any other civilization, okay? <laughs> but I got to tell you, they didn't come up with what we have, what we call science, emerged out of 16th and 17th century Christian uh, culture. And, and so you start realizing that it is amazing that even what we now know came because of people who believed that the world was created by God and it's amazing and we're going to use the tools of science to investigate it to God's glory. And so now we have the tools more than we ever did to look at creation and, and we have the ability to see that it is like heart-stoppingly amazing when you start looking at it. The level of design is so extraordinary that the way I look at it as a Christian, I think it, it paralyzes me with fear and awe of the God who did this. Like, this is not my buddy Jesus in blue jeans. This is, this is a God so far beyond my ability to comprehend that, that it just makes me want to fall on my face and cringe in fear. Who is this God? And then you realize, yes, that's who God is. And that God, that God chose to become a human being and chose to die a Roman torture death for you. Not for humanity, like literally for you. The God who, who designed this universe chose to do this because he knows your name and he has a plan for you. You know, not for America and the world, for you, for you. That's when it becomes next level. That's when you start realizing, I, I, I can't bear this. Like there's a God who, he's that amazing and he became a human being and he died for me. And he actually, actually wants me to have a relationship with him. The one who, who created the universe wants me to have a relationship with him. And I think the best honest response is, I can't bear that. That's too much. And that's when you realize like, yes, God says, I, I, you can't bear it but I will give you strength to bear it. In fact, I created you for that relationship. The very reason I created the entire universe, the very reason I created everything was so that I would create you and so I could have a relationship with you. I made you in my image. It's literally why the universe exists. I, I mentioned, obviously, I'm talking about my book. I read a book very recently. A woman lives here in San Diego. Her name is Eugenia Constantino. She wrote a book. It is utterly magnificent, and it will, it will make you more devoted to God if you read it. It's that level. Of, it's just so beautiful. But it's called The Crucifixion of the King of Glory. And it talks about the historical situation and about the crucifixion. It's really just, it's extraordinarily well-written and beautiful. But the reason I mention it is because when you read it, I, when I just read it, the, cru the crucifixion of the King of Glory, you start thinking it is unbearable for me to realize what Jesus did, what he suffered. And the history is there. Don't let anybody tell you, well, it's myth. It's myth. No, no. You just read this book, you'll see. No, you wish it was myth. It's, it's real. And it makes you realize there's only one way to live, is to acknowledge the facts. The facts from history, the facts from science, if you dare acknowledge those facts, it will 
make you realize that God did all this so that I could live life the way he wanted me to live life, which is he wants me to be free. He wants me not to live in fear of what other people think. He wants me to live not in fear of anything except him and except being a slave to fashion, a slave to intellectual fashion, but I'm gonna live free, I'm gonna speak freely, and I'm not gonna be afraid of anything because he literally defeated death on the cross. That's not a metaphor. He defeated death on the cross, and, and if I believe in him and trust him with my life, I will literally never die. I, he has defeated death, and this moment, if I'm born again through faith in him, I, this moment, begin to live in that eternal life. Okay, it's not a life that goes away at some point, like I'm a bug and it's over. No, it's just the opposite is that I begin to live eternal life and only living in that life and the reality of the God who made me and died for me, do I live the life that is called real life, a life of, of freedom and joy and purpose because we are not meant to live lives of no purpose. There's nothing more bleak and horrible and so God did this for us. And I just want to say that, you know, when you sometimes say, well, I believe, or people say, well, I believe, I believe. I just want to say, like, you can say you believe, but how you live determines what you actually believe. And if you, if you say, well, look at the statement of faith, my church's website. Yeah, I believe that stuff. It's like the devil is not fooled by the statement of faith on your church's website because he sees your life and he sees exactly what you actually believe by how you live. If you live in fear of what other people think, you clearly don't believe much. You talk about it, but if you actually believe it, you are free, you're not afraid. And I wanna say that that's the life God calls us to live. So if, if you don't actually live out what you say you believe, that is proof you don't actually believe it. And God wants you to believe it. God wants you to know who he is. Not to say, I hope, oh, I hope that's who he is. Stop hoping, folks. It's like saying, I hope one plus one equals two. We're, we're gonna, we'll see. No. No, it is. It is true. And God wants us to walk in that without any doubts. It, listen, folks, this is called an opportunity. God gives us an opportunity to live our lives freely, to live our lives with joy and purpose, knowing you will never die. He has defeated death on the cross. When you live into that, you are living the life that he died for you to have, that he created the whole universe for you to have that life. And, and, and folks, that is the opportunity and you can see how God's saying, please, please, don't miss this. I've I did this for you. Not for your friends, not for humanity, for you. And I, I desire you to take this gift because I love you. The God who created this universe loves you. And he knows your name and he has a plan for you. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen. For more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.